This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. So when I think about the factors that are essential to our ability to join, stay, succeed, and lead, in other words, to work at every stage of life, right up there with professional opportunity and education is our reproductive health and especially our ability to manage our own fertility. This has never felt more urgent or more complicated than it does now. With the overturning of Roe versus Wade, millions are losing access to the education and medical resources that prevent and address unwanted pregnancies. Anyone can promulgate content on social media, yet books are being banned and certified teachers are silenced in the classroom. And while there's a growing trend of acknowledging menopause in popular media, too few women are given scientifically sound information to navigate it, and rampant ageism moves us to the sidelines just as we become truly expert and wise. But information is power, which is why I'm so grateful for today's guest, Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. Jennifer is a board-certified OBGYN, the president and executive director of Mayday Health, and the author of Let's Talk About Down There, an OBGYN answers all your burning questions without making you feel embarrassed for asking. Through her massively popular TikTok and YouTube videos and her website, threeforfreedom.com, she demystifies sex ed and informs and equips girls, women, and those assigned female at birth to understand their bodies and advocate for themselves. And I couldn't be more thrilled to have her here today. Jennifer, welcome to Women at Work. Laura, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So you've got a lot going on, but it starts first and foremost with the fact that you're a certified physician. Tell me what motivated you to go into women's health care in the first place, and then we'll talk about all the other things that you're doing. Sure. Yeah. You know, it was one of those things where I grew up always knowing I wanted to be a doctor. And when I went to medical school, I was one of those people who I enjoyed everything. I liked all my rotations, um, but really it's when I did my OBGYN rotation. And um, I think it's pretty unique because I went to medical school at Tulane And you might've remembered that fun little hurricane. We had Hurricane Katrina that was during my third year of medical school. And so we had to evacuate to Houston. And so I ended up doing my OBGYN rotation in Houston. So as an evacuee in a system, completely not knowing what was going on, living in a house with like seven other medical students, short version, life was crazy. And yet I did that rotation and I loved every minute of it. And I thought if I can love this (laughs) in the midst of all the insanity, probably I should do this. And I just loved that it included healthcare, but it was so much more than that. It was meeting these women where they were at. It was everything that had brought them up to this point in their prenatal care and their gynecological care. So much external affected what was happening in the clinic room or in the hospital room. Um, And so I love that ability to advocate, to advocate for my patients and just the, you know, I don't have a master's of public health, but I joke that my social media is kind of like that. And it's this ability to educate and connect with patients in a different way. And you can do that in all facets of healthcare, but in women's health, especially where so much of our care has been marginalized. I think we see that now more than ever, the ability to be a physician, but also be involved in these different ways. Um, I just loved it. And I get to, you know, I get to see the happiest moments that I think most people, if they come to a hospital for, you know, if they're having a, a baby and, and that's something they planned and, and to see that work out and be there with a patient, that's amazing. And then also we have to walk with our patients through some of the darkest moments and to be able to do both is emotionally challenging, but also very fulfill, fulfilling. And I feel like the fact that I get to do this as part of my job is it's really, it's wonderful. It's And I'm sure it's wonderful for your patients, you know, to have somebody who, sees the fullness of the life cycle and that emotional experience and are treating patients as whole people makes such a difference, Um, which brings me to something you just noted, how marginalized women's health care has been. Why is that the case and where do you see it changing? Sure. So we know when we look at, for example, scientific studies that very often women have been excluded from studies looking at how medications work or you know dosages side effects because they've said historically that 
the fact that we're women and we have this pesky menstrual cycle, that that could skew the data and mess things up. And so they've just excluded us entirely. And I think now, you know, this is something OBGYNs we've known for a long time, but think about more recently what we've seen with vaccine trials, right? And the COVID vaccine and the on purpose decision made to exclude pregnant and breastfeeding people from these trials it's a very paternalistic way that you know that we're protecting this special group but what actually ends up happening is that we're taking away the choice for pregnant and breastfeeding people to enroll in these trials which if they want to and they're informed they should be allowed to because then we would actually have data on how on how it affects right. them and so what we've seen is that since you know one of the biggest reasons I've seen people who've chosen not to, for example, get the COVID vaccine or even the flu vaccine, they say, well, I don't know how it's going to, you know, what it happens, what happens in pregnancy, how it's going to affect my baby. Now, retrospectively, we have data, but in that initial rollout, so many people refused or declined because they weren't included in the trials. And so what happens is that we have a lower uptake in a group that we know is hit harder by something like COVID. So this is just one example, but we've seen this happen time and time again. We see in diagnoses that only affect women and people with the uterus, such as endometriosis, that far fewer funding dollars, government funding, private funding, go towards these things. And it's just a very concrete example of what happens in a society that is a very patriarchal, misogynistic society. Not that people may actively walk around thinking that, but when we hold fewer leadership positions in scientific institutions, in funding and business institutions, those dollars don't flow as well to us. And thus we end up having things that are understudied and we're left scrambling and sometimes going to the internet for solutions. And that's not always a great place to be. So that brings me to another aspect of your identity, which is that of educator. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about um, what brought you to the internet. Um, Cause you seem fired up with a lot of important information that needs to be shared. Yeah, I joined Instagram professionally now a few years ago, and it really came out of a desire to connect with other physician moms because it just felt, I felt very isolated. And I think when you're trying to succeed as a physician and as a mother, we have some unique challenges that I'm sure we'll get to. Um, and I, I just found that having that connection with other doctor moms who were doing this um, and seeing them succeed, it was, it was really valuable to me. And then I saw how they were using their platforms as an extension of their medical selves and doing this sort of professional education. And that just opened up a whole new world to me. I've always loved communicating, writing. I minored in English in college. I wrote for the newspaper. I just love taking complicated things and making it very easily understandable because I think I often go back to the teenage version of myself who got only abstinence, only education, who, you know, I really had to kind of teach myself a lot of the things that now, even today, students aren't being taught in school. So to be able to, to fill that void and do that on social media, I just saw what an impact it was. I always see myself as a clinician first, and I love doing the things that I do on a day-to-day -day basis, but to see how I can reach so many more people through a post or a story share, it's, it's crazy. But it's also where we have to be because that's where we're spending hours of our day is on the phone, looking at social media sites. I do it myself. And I also see how much bad stuff is out there. And I had no, I mean, I knew, you know, we know Google's not reliable and all those things. But then when you really see how pervasive it is on social media, so many harmful messages about birth control, sex, abortion, so many things, um, and how people are, are capturing this and trying to make money off of us and sell us things in this fear-based marketing. And it's, it's scary. So to be there has been really satisfying. And then I took the jump to TikTok very unwillingly before the <laughs> pandemic. So I feel like I was, you know, at least a little bit trendsetter there, but now, were you going said, there because like, because of your, do you have, first of all, how many children do you have? I have two, I have two boys, 12 and seven, um, who kind of have an idea that I do this education thing, but do not have access to social media yet. And I'm a huge fan of that. Well done. Uh, <laughs> we'll see how long that lasts, but, um, you know, being married to a pediatrician who very clearly sees the harms that social media can do to young people, you know, where it's, it's kind of funny. And I think once they figure it out, they'll, they'll either be horrified or really happy. Um, <laughs> but I went to TikTok because my other, you know, doctor friends and, and people that I've connected with on social media who are healthcare professionals, they're like, Jen, your whole audience is literally on TikTok. Why are you not here? And, and really, you know, talking about before a bunch of us quote unquote older people jumped on, it was really, you know, Gen Z, you know, 13 to, to 19. And, and that's a lot of what my content really was geared towards. So I went there, I made a post. It didn't make it through the screening. They took it down, I think, because it had like the word vagina in it, heaven forbid. And then I reposted it. 
and it got through and I went to bed and I woke up and I had like a million views and I thought, okay, we should, I should probably be here. And like the rest is sort of history and things have just taken off. Um, but it's, it's interesting again, to see stuff that can go viral so quickly and it's great. And then other stuff is so bad. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a learning curve. I just, I tell people, don't worry, you'll never see me dance. That's, I can guarantee that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So taking a step back for a minute, you were talking about, it was your, that dual aspect of your life of being a physician and a mom Mm -hmm. that was bringing you to Instagram and to other women who were having the same experiences. What is it that you needed and that you were missing that was bringing you to them? Oh, such a good question. I think it was just this ability to see other successful physician moms who felt how I did that some days were really hard because we love our job so much, but we feel like we're not doing such a great job at home on those days. And then vice versa. Some days we love being home and and being able to do the things with our kids, but we feel guilty because we don't work full time. Um, I'm very transparent with people because they say, how do you do it all? And I'm very clear that I have help. I work part-time. And I remember when I cut down part-time pretty early in my career, it was a few males in my practice, which is not my current practice, who said, how can you cut back so early? Isn't that a waste of your training? Like you went through residency and you're cutting back so that you can be home with my, you know, my then one child. And I felt so guilty and I felt like an imposter. And I did, I felt like I was wasting my talents and my training. And I hope that they see where I am now. And I I very much don't feel that way, but I also want trainees and other physicians who are out there who are doing, who are killing themselves working 80 hours a week still and feel that they can't do these things that we can. And to set that example and that boundaries and saying no are wonderful things. And you don't have to work the traditional model of what medicine has been in order to be successful because that model was, let's be real, based on men, male physicians who had their stay-at-home wives who were doing everything for them. And that's not (laughs) how it is for most of us women and nor should it be because we can be doctors and moms and friends. And quite frankly, I know that my patients appreciate They'd rather have a well-rested physician who hasn't been up for 36 hours mm-hmm. as opposed to me who do, you know, I do 12 hour shifts and they know that when they get me, like I'm here and I'm hundred percent on. And even if I get killed in those 12 hours, I'm going to be okay. Cause I know I've got, you know, a schedule where I'm able to recuperate and, and do the things at home and, and have a supportive partner. I think that was really powerful seeing other people on Instagram who were doctors who were like, yeah, I don't care what, you know, a 70 year old male doctor says that I'm not working enough or making enough productivity. Um, and we have the data to support, right? That women physicians, we have better outcomes. Our patients live, you know, they die less often. They have less surgical complications. Like we're doing a really good job. And I think that it's important that especially trainees see that too. And it also underscores how um, almost mutually antagonistic these systems are because we have a biological timeline that we're, mm-hmm. we try and push it, but we're working within that happens to completely overlap with the professional, the period of professional training, whether mm-hmm. you're an academic or a physician, these are time bound experiences that, um, people don't get to like jump on and jump off. Right. So by the time that you are through your residency, you're at a a precious time in your life personally and as a parent. Exactly. So you're usually in your 30s, you know, and like you said, the clock is ticking. And I think it's important for people to know that, you know, infertility, which is a medical disease, and it's one that I'm sure we'll talk about, but often is not treated or covered by insurance. But one in eight Americans will, you know, females will experience infertility, but that rate is one in four for female physicians. And there's a whole host of reasons there, but we're hit harder by fertility issues. We're coming out of our training when we might feel comfortable having kids later. Um, It's a huge problem. And a lot of women, I get it. They're like, how can I do both? How can I succeed? Am I going to be looked down upon or be passed over for that promotion to full professor if I take time off to have a child? Um, you know, legally we're not supposed to be asked if we're if we plan to have kids, but I can't tell you how many times those things have been commented on. And I doubt my male colleagues have had those same questions asked. So um it's right. a huge problem. Yeah. It's a constant challenge. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, and she's the president and executive director of Mayday Health and founder of 3forfreedom.com, amongst the many things that she does. So Jennifer, with this, you have this wonderful 
insight into how the intensity of the emotional experiences, the quality of the information we're getting, the challenges we're facing at each time of life, at each stage of life come together. Um, as an educator, how do you, what do you see as the most urgent needs right now? Who are the groups? What stage of life are they at? Like there's so much that we need to learn and understand. What do you think is most like urgent right now? I mean, I think as we record this very close to the 50th anniversary of what would have been Roe, which is not the 50th anniversary we won't get to, I really think the most urgent need is for people to understand how to protect themselves from an unintended pregnancy. And that even starts with before, like, okay, how do we, where do we get birth control and, you know, emergency contraception and, and abortion care, but really understanding how your body works. And that may sound very trivial, but so few students get comprehensive, medically accurate sex education. And that includes the menstrual cycle and understanding when you can get pregnant and, and when you need to be more careful if you're having sex. And that's because we have seen in this country worse access to this kind of education when we did a survey um, compared to students who got this kind of ed education. Um, we're doing worse in 2015 compared to when they looked in 1995. Fewer students are getting that because we're seeing more focus on abstinence-only programs, which we know don't work. We know right. we just know that they don't work. <laughs> they don't delay sex. They don't make you know people choose secondary abstinence. And so we have our young people out there in the world not understanding how their bodies work. And now we've got really restrictive laws when it comes to abortion access. And now we're seeing, for example, in states like Texas, where now it's even harder for teens to get birth control. And so truly, I think the number one need is educating people how in all 50 states they can access this education, how to protect themselves, how to take care of themselves. And yes, that includes discussing how to access an abortion in all 50 states, because that is healthcare. And we know that when people don't have that, they do much worse. Um, and we have the data to show that as well. And that these are all really economic issues because when we don't have care or we don't have choice or control over our reproductive, you know, when we choose to have kids or we choose not to have kids, how to parent and afford the kids, you know, the kids that we have right now, um, these are economic issues. It affects everybody. Even if you think that, well, that's not going to affect me, but it does. This, this is a trickle down effect for sure. Absolutely. So it's mystifying for me. And I know, and, and our listeners, so I have a particular point of view on this, but the loss of access to birth control mm -hmm. is going to have a profound effect on the workforce, on the country's economy, not just our individual economies. And I, it's mind boggling to me that teachers are silenced, that sex ed isn't taught as a scientific subject in school, that they're like, as if there's an aspect of biology that's missing. So as you're working and it looks like you're working alone and with some other really dedicated physicians to try and get information out there. Um, you've done dozens of these at this point, but where do you begin? Um, how do you bring people who are sheltered mm -hmm. um, into a conversation so that they're ready to hear it and they can understand the information that you're giving them? Yeah, I think that's a great way to frame it. And I always start off when I'm talking about anything that people might consider controversial, which it's sad that we think talking about these sorts of things is controversial, but but it's where we are. And public health is about meeting your audience about where they are and giving them information in a way that they will understand it and do something about it. So I can sit here and lecture and say, you should always agree with abortion and you should agree with this and that, but that's useless. So I come at it from a place of, I am not here to convince you that you should agree with abortion and agree with full access everywhere and birth control should be free. But what I am here is to ask you to understand these facts, understand this data and understand why I want you to have the information to make an informed choice for you and allow others who may make a choice that's different from you, allow them to have that. Because even if you don't agree, we know that when things like access to birth control and abortion are not available, um, this has a huge trickle down effect. For example, we know that when um, women don't have access to abortion, you have increased, you have decreased their probability of graduating from college by about 72%. We have data from the turnaway study that shows that we have huge economic impacts when people don't have access and control over their reproductive future. So starting from that, and also coming from a very shame-free lens, all of my content 
I am not here to shame anybody. And I say, it's okay if you're 37 and this is the first time you understand your menstrual cycle, you were set up to fail. You were not given the tools. So don't, don't feel bad if you fell for this product or this hack or this trick, or you bought this supplement. That's why it's here. I mean, that's why they're successful because they know how to, they know how to take advantage of what we were taught and our vulnerabilities. And really the shame-based way that we walk around feeling ashamed because when you don't teach something in school or you say that you're not allowed to talk about it, you're saying it's bad and dirty and shameful and nothing could be further from the truth. And that's how we see the conversation about sex education, birth control, abortion. It's people being afraid to talk about these things. So I try to use my platforms to say, yeah, we're going to say the word vagina and that's okay because that's a medical term. We're not going to use some silly slang. And you know, I'm optimistic, but still these platforms will suppress things, but trying to change that narrative. And I have huge hope in Gen Z because they, they are here for it and they are not afraid to call these things out. And so I'm hoping we're changing that narrative. So as a mom, um, I it was really important to me that I created a landscape for regular dialogue. We didn't have the talk. We talk a lot about exactly. yeah. sex, sexuality, bodies. I want her to be informed. I want her to be in the driver's seat of her own life and, and have the information she needs to protect herself. But I also realized that um, staying up to date with advances in technologies resources that are available. There are many birth control options available mm-hmm. now that weren't available when I was her age. For And the medical community obviously stays informed, but especially in an environment where um, kids may not have access to med- me- medical care providers who are educated and informed, they're mm-hmm. not getting it in school. How can parents stay up to date with the resources that are available, because otherwise, like kids are getting it, like you said, off of TikTok, off of YouTube. And then there's no way uh, without the just keeping them off of social media at large, which at a point feels like holding back the ocean. Mm -hmm. How do we get the information to counter it? Yeah, no, totally. And I think like, let's just talk about a specific aspect, like let's say IUDs, for example, um, which are a great form of contraception. And, um, when teenagers do have them placed, they have a super high retention rate at one year, which means that they like it, they continue to use it. But this is a perfect example of a method of birth control that maybe some parents might not be familiar with. And then they don't talk about it. The healthcare provider they may bring their teen to may have incorrect and old fashioned thoughts that you can't have one until you're older, you've had a baby, none of which is true. And then let's say the teenager goes onto TikTok and there was a study that just came out that showed that the vast majority of social media content on TikTok about IUDs is completely negative. So you've got all these things working against you, right? So like, how are you going to figure out where to go, what to do? And you can be like, well, yeah, there are, you know, like there's people like me out there who are making good content, but sometimes it's hard to know what's good and what's not. And so having a few good resources in your corner, I think is huge. I would say my absolute favorite website is bedsider.org. And what I love about that website is that it's very easy to understand. It's very visual. All the content is written or reviewed by medical professionals. And it's presented in a way that's like, you can actually understand it. You can see the pictures (laughs) of it. There's frequently asked questions um, and it's constantly updated. And so I think having good websites that you know you can go to can be really helpful I also think that it's great if you're a parent and you're like, Hey, what have you heard about this? Or what are you seeing? I like, you're right. You cannot keep your kids off social forever, but I highly encourage that you sit there and like scroll through together and be like, what do you think about that? Or what do you think about this? Or, Oh my gosh, they said that. Do you think that's true? And you're giving them this digital literacy and you're helping to walk with them through it. Obviously you're not going to sit there and scroll every day. But they can see that, oh, wow, like they actually care. And you're right, that I thought that was real, but it's not. And you're also showing that you're open to those conversations. I also, like what you said, it should not be a talk, right? It should be a continuous conversation. That way your kids know they can come to you with questions. And it's totally okay if in one of those conversations you say, I don't know the answer. Let's figure it out together. It's really a huge reason why I wrote my book. And I, I tell people that my book is like a TikTok in book form. And I tell people that you should leave it in the bathroom or leave it out and let your kids like look at it whenever they're ready. And my book's really written. It's, it's not like the first book about puberty, but it's more the questions, you know, they'll have afterwards. So I, my audience is it's like 16 and above, I would say, but it asks all the embarrassing questions or it answers all what people consider embarrassing questions and very Q and a based organized by topic. 
And my friends who bought it and, you know, have their teenagers, you know, they just have it out and, and they'll see them like flipping through a chapter, or, you know, looking at something. And then you can say, hey, do you have any questions about this? These conversations happen organically that way. Or when you're driving somewhere, it's not like you sit down and be like, today we talk about birth control. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Um, or, you know, you're watching TV or like Grey's Anatomy. They just had an episode, you know, they've been doing a bunch of great content about abortion. They're saying, what do you feel about that? What do you think about that? I think that's great. And if you feel that your kid's doctor, healthcare provider, like isn't up to date on these sorts of things, or like they're not comfortable talking about this stuff with your teen, that's a great data point that maybe they're not the right one for your, for your teenager. And I think some pediatricians do a fantastic job of talking about this stuff and others just don't feel as comfortable. So it could be a great time to transition or at least introduce taking your, your young person to an OBGYN. The American College of OBGYN recommends between the ages of 13 and 15. And that's really just an introductory chat, but it's another person in your corner and in your daughter's corner where we can say, oh, I don't know, but let's let's ask them. Um, so it's just about getting all the good people in the room who you can say, I need some help talking about this. I was never taught because there's no shame in that. None at all. We need to take a short break, but don't go away. When we come back, I'll continue my conversation with Jennifer Lincoln, activist, educator, and OB hospitalist, um, who is passionate about helping girls, women, and those assigned female at birth understand their bodies and feel empowered to advocate for themselves. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can support more women in our efforts to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest this hour is the amazing Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, OBGYN, President and Executive Director of Mayday Health and founder of 3forfreedom.com, who's working tirelessly to help girls, women, and those assigned female at birth understand their bodies and feel empowered to advocate for themselves. So Jennifer, welcome back. Thanks so much. Right before the break, we were talking about educating our girls in particular, um, or our children assigned female at birth. And um, you were bringing up a couple of things that I thought were really important that I just wanted to bring into high relief. So one was that um, there's a way that we can invite them into the conversation. And it um, and one of the things that you modeled in how you were talking about it was not, okay, sit down, we're having the talk, but more sharing, exp viewing experiences with them where I ask them how they feel about this. What's their opinion of it? Um, do you have any advice for parents on how to open up the conversation when they get the sense that their kid is engaging in risky behavior or is struggling with something? Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. I think that it's really okay um, to, first of all, sit with it. You know, you don't have to do it in the moment. You can take your time and collect yourself. And, you know, because if you come at it from a, from a place of, oh my goodness, what are you doing? I saw your text message and I saw you sent this picture. Like that's probably not going to go so go over so well. So it's okay to, <laughs> okay to collect yourself. And trust me as a parent, I have to remind myself of this all the time. Like, okay, take a break. Um, but I think it's, I think just being straight shooters with kids, I think that they appreciate that and saying, I have some concerns or normalizing things and saying, when I was your age, I, um, you know, I had this, this happened to me, or I was worried about this because when they see you as not just their parent, but like, oh yeah, back in the old days, you know, you were, you were 16 or 17 once too, or whatever. Um, they can see like, okay, maybe, maybe they really do get it and they may not totally believe you, but I think coming from a place, starting with, you're not in trouble and I'm not here to, to scream at you and punish you, but I want to talk about this because I love you and I want to make sure that if you're in trouble or you need some help, you can talk to me and ask them and say, you know, are you okay if we talk about this right now? Because when you show that respect, they're more likely to feel in control in some way and not out of control and feel like, oh my goodness, she saw my text messages. And I think it's okay to, you know, if they're like, no, I don't want to talk, say, okay, well, we need to talk about this. So you let me know when, um, you know, and giving some control choices. And I think that um, that can be really helpful. And if you feel like you don't know how to do that conversation, it's okay to say, you know, I'm really worried about this. We need to talk about this together, but I'm not quite sure. 
I'm going to make an appointment or with our pediatrician or with our school counselor or what have you and, and frame it from a place of, I want you to succeed. And a technique, if you're really worried, let's say that they're having unprotected sex, um, is to say, listen, honey, I know you're only 17, but how old do you feel you'd be ready to have a baby? Do you feel like you want to have a baby in the next year? That's actually a, a interv- inter, um, interviewing tool that the American College of OBGYN is a, is a fan of because it helps to frame family planning and, and birth control conversations is, do you, see, do you see yourself wanting to have a baby in the next year? And most teenagers are like, oh my God, no. And you're like, cool. Um, are, you know, if you're currently having sex and you're a teenager, if you know there's a hundred of you having unprotected sex after 12 months, 90, nine zero of you will be pregnant. And you let that sink in and say, okay, so what are we thinking about? What, what do you want information on? What have you heard? Starting from that, I think is really helpful because then you're also figuring out what they've heard what myths you need to undo, or they're like, I don't know anything. And that's why having, you know, that we talked about bringing your kids to an OBGYN just for that first like meet and greet appointment when they're young teens can be really helpful because in these moments is when you've already got somebody established and you can say, I think we need to talk about X, Y, or Z. Um, And if they're like, mom, I cannot talk about this with you say, okay, but here's, I I want you to look at this, whether it's this website or, you know, have this conversation and respecting their autonomy and saying, we need to talk about this. Fine. If you don't want to talk about it with me, but Dr. So-and-so the OBGYN, she's going to chat with you. And I want you to know that anything she says is confidential, unless you're thinking of harming yourself or somebody else and giving them a place to have these safe conversations is so important. It's hugely important. So um, well, we talked about leaving the books around and I got the teenage version of our bodies ourselves and Mm -hmm. just like had it all around the house. Yeah, um, exactly. There are some extraordinary digital resources available now, a number of which are yours. Um, in particular, 3forfreedom.com. I was so impressed, Jennifer. Can you share with us, one, um, what the idea was behind it and a little summary of what people can find there? Because it just seemed so crisp, so clear, so useful. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that was a... Uh... That was a website I came up with one day in the shitboard <laughs> after the after the Dobbs leak. I thought, oh my God, like, what are we going to do? You know, we know this is coming. So this was when that Supreme Court memo came out that they were planning to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I remember where I was when I heard that. And I just went to bed and I, I woke up and I thought, what can we do? And I thought, you know, how come there's not a website out there for people who can just literally take their freedom back when our freedoms will be taken from us? And you know, there are, there's mail order birth control and there's mail order abortion pills and you can get plan B from Amazon and all these things. But to me, there was no one-stop shopping that was super simple. And I've framed this website as like, in my mind, I wanted it to be like a McDonald's drive-through, no frills. You go through A, B, and C, one, two, and three, place your order, pull around, done, you know, you're good. And so for those who haven't visited the website, this website is just a hub. It's not selling anything, but it's literally, you can go through And you can be taken to websites where you can get mail order birth control, mail order emergency contraception or morning after pills and mail order abortion pills. Yeah. In all 50 States. And, um, it's just super simple. It, you know, I'm not tracking anything. We're not selling anything and it just didn't exist. And I made this website. My husband helped me. You should have seen us trying to do this, you know, at night after like putting the kids to bed and, um, we put it out there and it launched. And then the day after Roe fell, which we knew it was going to, um, the website got 80,000 hits. Um, so people were, were really looking. And in the weeks that followed, I thought, okay, cool. So I made a website. I'm a doctor. Um, I don't have, t- like, how am I going to keep this going? <laughs> this is not my skill set. And so I happened to connect with the folks at Mayday, you know, the organization I'm now the ex- executive director of, but this is how it started was I saw their website, Mayday.health, which was the same exact concept for abortion pills, but that same idea, super simple, super crisp. And I reached out to them and I said, Hey, so I made this website. Would you guys want to take it over and like use all your amazing resources that you have to get it out there? Um, I feel like we could be friends. And it worked out. And then, then the next things happened. And before you know it, now I'm the executive director of Mayday Health, and um, we we are getting you know over a million people are meeting or visiting Mayday Health, Mayday every month, um, figuring out how to get abortion access in all fifty states. And Three for Freedom, um, same thing is 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 doing amazing. So it was um, it was fun to see an idea that 
was totally random, but I was like, I just feel like who hasn't thought of this yet? And to see it succeed is part of it is the simplicity of it. And then the depth that's there. One of the things I really appreciated was um, that in the same way that you might think, use the McDonald's metaphor, do I want small, surprise, small, large cheese on my burger? What do I want? Um, It welcomes everyone in, in its language and in the question that it's asking, Mm -hmm. including all different age groups. Because it's also important to recognize that our need to take care of these things isn't, it's not just a teenage issue. Mm-hmm. And that as women, we have the fertile years of our lives, but that's not when our gynecological care ends or where our need for access to information ends. Um, one of the things I've been enormously struck by is what se- feels like menopause has become fashionable mm-hmm. or it's not taboo. And that's awesome. It's wonderful that people, amazing, beautiful, sexy, influential, powerful women are acknowledging that they're menopausal. Yet all I'm seeing out there, going back to what you said about why women weren't included in certain studies Mm -hmm. because that pesky menstrual cycle, what we're hearing is, and it also reminds me a lot of what happens on social media. There's um, the sympathy and empathy for the symptoms we experience, but it seems to be in a vacuum of information on how to manage those symptoms Mm -hmm. or how to contextualize it as part of an otherwise effective, powerful, mature person who intellectually is many ways in the prime of their life. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I love it. I I co-sign. And I think a huge (laughs) part of it relates to the fact that, um, the society in which we're in, which is that we tend to value women the most when um, they fit into the idea of what we think a woman should be. So they can make babies when we need them to, they can be sex kittens when we need them to, which is weird because we have to like fit it into the purity culture idea of we're not supposed to have sex before marriage. Right, we have but to then, look like it, but not be it. Absolutely. Yeah. So talk about, yeah, that's, that's not a double-edged sword, is it? Okay. And then once you go through menopause, you're seen as maybe not that useful in society because you can't make babies and maybe you're not as sexy and, and it's totally what happens in a patriarchal society. And I like that. We, I feel like we're turning a corner in that, Mm -hmm. right. I feel like we can say the word menopause and hot flashes and it's not this, you know, poo poo thing, but we still have a huge way to go. And I would say that even in my medical training, the amount of training I got in menopause was far less than I got in how to manage labor and birth or, you know, heavy menstrual bleeding, for example. So I think that speaks to to where we prioritize things. And like you said, in terms of research and treatments and those kinds of things, many women often feel like they're just, they don't know what to do. And when they do bring up their concerns to their healthcare provider, they might be told, oh, well, oh, sex hurts and it feels dry. Well, you just, just use some lube and drink a glass of wine and relax. And their symptoms, which are true medical symptoms related to having a lower estrogen level, they're just pushed off. And so then they think, oh, it's just me, right? And you don't want to talk about it because we're not supposed to talk about sex. It's shameful. And then they try to, maybe they turn to other treatments that are not FDA approved, not evidence-based, but they're feeling helpless and they're met with these alternative treatments that are actually really harmful. I think- One of the great people who I'm so thrilled that she's done this, but Dr. Jen Gunter is an OBGYN who wrote the book, The Menopause Manifesto. And that's the book I tell everybody, like, that's the book you want to read when it comes to menopausal issues, because it talks about the history of menopause, talks about what you're actually experiencing and what real treatments are, um, which yes, can include hormones and yes, can be done safely. But I think a huge part of it is even the medical establishment feeling like, oh, well, it's not that big a deal. Like, oh, just, just just buy some KY and you'll be fine. And, and we're just marginalized and it's not fair because like you said, um, going through menopause can actually be really, really empowering because you no longer have to worry that you might get pregnant. And some people report postmenopausal sex as some of the best sex they've had because they don't have that concern. And like, where is that narrative when we're talking about <laughs> menopause, you know? So there's definitely still work to be done for sure. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio and Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zaro, and I'm talking with Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, a board-certified OBGYN, lactation consultant, author, activist, mother, and right, she's amazing. So Jennifer, as I think about source, who needs this information that's not out there? Um, 
I can't help but think about our work environments. Obviously, Mm -hmm. this is women at work. I'm at a business school. We think about this all the time. But one, there's the way that public messaging shapes public opinion. And the public are our colleagues at work, our employers. There's also the role that employers play in providing essential benefits for us. Mm -hmm. And that includes healthcare. As you look at this landscape, of what's changing in our society and the growing importance of employers in this regard. What should we be looking for as employees when we're job hunting, when we're negotiating? Are there red flags, good signs, things that we should be looking for to understand the degree to which our employer is likely to support us as we go through these life changes and experiences? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say the best thing we could do sometimes, I feel like, is not... (laughs) (laughs) not work in America and go to a different country where they actually care and give us paid family leave. And it's just, it's a disaster when you look at how the United States does not prioritize leave. So if we just start there, you know, asking what's your paid family leave policy, I think that is a great place to start because that tells you a lot about what they value and not just, do you have it, but how much is it? And what does it include? Because you can have paid family leave. Let's say you get I don't know, six or eight weeks or three months off um, paid maternity leave. Is there also paternity leave? And these are benefits. This is not new data that companies that offer this have far higher employee retention rates. Um, So it shouldn't be a surprise. But what other things do they allow leave for as well? I've seen more and more companies talking about leave to take time off for fertility treatments or after pregnancy loss. Um, Or here's an idea. How about leave for when people have you know, really horrible menstrual periods, do they offer potentially time off for that? Um, these are things that are happening in other countries and we just continue to play catch up. And we have to prioritize this because we know after the pandemic, there are 100,000 fewer estimated childcare workers. So this concept that you can't offer any of this, do they offer any childcare subsidies? Um, do they offer onsite childcare? Do they do they consider flexibility in terms of scheduling and working from home and, and those kinds of things? I think that the pandemic, the, maybe the one silver lining is that we saw that we can do a lot of, we can work in different ways and yep. be successful for sure. What, is, what about insurance? Yeah. And insurance, I mean, we talk about insurance, right? And we say, do they have health insurance, but looking so much more into it, do they potentially cover costs for fertility treatments? Very few places do, but there are bigger businesses that are doing that. And I think the more that do this, the more that we will hopefully see this happen in other places. And I've and, seen talent leave organizations to mm-hmm. go to places with better fertility benefits. Absolutely. I mean, I would too. And this can cost, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. So to not be able to grow your family in the way that you want, because your job won't offer that. And then, you know, I would leave too. And then that leads to why, if we just offer these things, these businesses would actually save money based on employee retention. And then unfortunately now in a post-real world, we're seeing jobs that are offering coverage for travel to other States for abortion care. And I say, unfortunately, because I think it's ridiculous. We have to think about this. Um, And of course the most marginalized won't be in the kinds of jobs. They're going to be the ones who need it most, but do they offer that? Do they offer travel and time off for these kinds of things? Um, I think these are all great things that we can look at. And um, is it a, and asking if people actually use it, do, do people use their time off? Or is it there? Or is it actually really used? And and do the men especially use it? Because we've seen that's probably, that if there's one data point, mm-hmm. I think that's it. Do the men use their paternity leave? Mm-hmm. Because if the answer is yes, then you know it's safe to use yours. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think that I've had friends who, you know, were, and I, you know, will deliver babies and I'll say, oh, how much time do you have off? And I'll ask the male partner. He's like, yeah, but I think I might go back. I said, don't, please don't. I said, do you understand how important it is that if you have it, you use it and it's for everybody. So I get my little, get on my little soapbox when I'm, you know, <laughs> doing postpartum day one rounds. I said, please, no, it's, it's important that you use this. <laughs> so it really that is. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back to this issue then in the workplace of given that menopause is something that we have so few women in the C-suite, so few women in the pipeline to leadership roles, by the time we get there, we're most likely at perimenopausal or menopausal, Mm -hmm. Um, which means that one, we have to navigate a culture where for a long time, we've likely had to 
package our femininity in ways that are tolerable in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And we're just getting to leadership roles, but, you know, the, some of our strength and power can be eroded accidentally and with amazing speed, um, depending on the culture of the environment we're in. What advice do you have for women who are, regardless of role at the stage, but in particular, um, can be in leadership roles, but need to also protect themselves, mm-hmm. to help to change the culture around menopause mm. and to help make sure that with a growing awareness of it, we're all people, we're all, we all have bodies, our bodies work in predictable ways, we shouldn't have to hide this, but how do we educate the people around us to not marginalize us because of some of the symptoms that come with it? Uh, not yeah. beyond just the, we're no longer baby making machines. Right, right. Well, I think a great example of this is, what was it in the state of Missouri where they just voted and passed that bill that um, women representatives can't wear, uh, they have to have sleeves, right? So they ha- they can't have whatever it is, sleeveless. Um, right, you can't wear like that. a sheath jacket. A sheath right, jacket. right, right. Which don't get me started, but like, isn't this a great example? So what if somebody is there and they are perimenopausal or menopausal and having, maybe they have a blazer over it and then they have a hot flash and they want to take off their blazer and they can't because that's now the rule on the floor. So I'm right. highlighting this because this is so ridiculous. And yet these are the exact laws that are getting passed. So it's little micro aggressions like this, or you can't do this. That's not considered professional. So if you are in the C-suite and with the average age of menopause in America being about 51 and a half, 52, it's very likely that you will, or you will interact with people. I think the best thing that we can do is normalize these conversations and say, you know, oh, sorry, I need a few moments. I'm having a hot flush or I have to go, you know, I think that even though I know we're, we've traditionally been taught that we shouldn't talk about these personal things in the workplace, we are making it worse for others when we don't acknowledge those things. It's just like when we say, oh, I need to go pump. And in residency, I got some resistance from my male attendings who got very annoyed, but I continued to say the word pump because it was important for me, but also for my residents behind me to say, yes, this is your important time. You need to protect it. So not just trying to hide, oh yeah, I've got to go get a snack. That's why I'm leaving or oh, I'm turning the temperature down here because I don't feel good. Or I think naming it and saying what it is and not being afraid to talk about these things is important because it it gives people a space to understand that it's just healthcare. It's not some weird feminine thing that we shouldn't be talking about. And for anyone who wants to say, well, then they might view you as being too emotional or I I don't know. I just go back to the Kevin McCarthy speaker situation and go, really, who was the emotional (laughs) Who are the emotional ones and who are the ones who are actually pretty mature? So I think it's important that we take back this narrative of talking about menopause as if it's this shameful thing. And I think it's important that if you are the one where you have the power to, for example, to select a healthcare plan and you're trying to decide, look and see what they offer in terms of coverage for hormonal medications, or if they don't, you know, helping your employees understand that, Hey, I know our employee package, you know, estrogen, um, cream is actually really expensive, but if you go to Mark Cuban's pharmacy, it's only this, and it's having these conversations and talking about these things, I think is really powerful. And it shows your younger employees that you're still going to be respected and seen as worthwhile, even if you're heaven forbid, postmenopausal. So it it can accomplish a lot of good because it's normalizing Mm -hmm. the discussion, Mm -hmm. signaling um, the acceptance of these things to the talent that you're trying to retain and cultivate and can also help you retain your power while also be, being comfortable at the same time. Exactly. It's this idea that we have to fit into this mailbox of what a leader is. And honestly, I've never thought about this stuff more than I have in the past month as my new role as an executive director, because this is a new world for me. And it's so funny to read these business books and these leadership books and this idea of what a leader is and I think this idea that we have to fit into this mold of a traditional male leader, it minimizes our unique talents as females, which we know, like I said, as you know, as physicians, we've got better outcomes and we're seen as in some ways as better leaders. And so when we do this, we invite more people to the table and we also increase that pipeline because people think, oh, I can be a leader and still be a woman. And the two are not mutually exclusive. Not at all. Um, so speaking of leadership, you're clearly... I don't know if it was intentional or not, but you're on a leadership journey. You've landed in a leadership role. Um, (laughs) Just a little bit on how are you preparing, how have you prepared yourself for that 
you know, both you may be an educator, but you're clearly also a lifelong learner. So how have you prepared yourself to take on those leadership roles and what's next for you? Oh, yeah. I, I've just learned to stop saying I'll never do something. Just like I said, I would never be on TikTok, which turned out to not at all be the right answer. And I'm there and it's, it's going well. I remember telling my husband, I said, I will never do any sort of leadership role in medicine or business. I just, I love clinical medicine too much. I'll never do this. And then this opportunity presented itself at Mayday in the moment, you know, the summer after Roe fell. I mean, I just feel like sometimes you, you say no until the perfect opportunity pops up. And then I just said, yes. And here I am learning as I go. And I think the best way that I'm preparing myself for it is that I am actually being very, maybe very feminine and I'm being very transparent. And I'm saying, you can tell me if this isn't how you think it should be, or I I'm open to feedback and marrying that what we see as a more traditional feminine idea of, yes, I want to make sure you're, you're doing well and you're happy, but also weaving in my own confidence of I can do this. And I am, you know, I'm going to go with my gut in certain times and I, it might not always be the same decision that everybody's agreeing with, but getting comfortable with the fact that we can lead in a way that's still collaborative but also have times where we say, okay, I need to make that decision. And I think that I'm doing my best because I feel very comfortable operating, you know, doing an emergency C-section in under one minute. And you have to make tough decisions really quickly. It's just, it's a new field, but um, I am a lifelong learner and I'm surrounding myself with people and I'm learning from them. And I'm being very honest and saying, I'm not comfortable with this aspect of this. I want you to teach me this and tell me what resources and know that it's okay to be 41 that how old I am? Yeah, 41. And say, I'm still a, a beginner at this. Um, and I've got amazing people to look up to. And it's, you know, it's people having these kinds of conversations that I feel like I'm learning from. And then I'm also trying to pave the way for people behind me. And it's like these sorts of things where, you know, we're deciding on health insurance and we're deciding on our leave policy and we're deciding on retirement. And I'm thinking, how can I say, I have to say yes to this because the 26 year old on my staff, I want her to know this is important. So um, it's kind of like a weird full circle moment, which is nice. It's a beautiful thing. So Jennifer, where can people find you and all the good that you do? Yeah. So you can find me on all the socials, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. It's Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. And if you are a parent and you're wanting some more long form content, especially on how to talk to your teens, I've got a bunch of content, especially on YouTube for that. Um, and then at mayday.health, that's our website where you can look into getting abortion pills in all 50 states and threeforfreedom.com and my website, which is drjenniferlincoln.com. Um, you can find me there having fun. Awesome. And don't forget about let's talk about down there and OBGYN answers all your burning questions without making you feel embarrassed for asking her fabulous book. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Laura, thank you so much for having this conversation and having me be a part of it. My pleasure. And thank you for listening. If you have a question about anything you heard today, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Many thanks to my team, Kara Pogue, my producers. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody, and go learn something. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.